What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. So I am super excited for today's episode because, to be completely honest, I don't know how I haven't thought of doing this a long-ass time ago. (laughs) It's something I've seen on other people's websites. It's something that I've enjoyed in the past looking at, and I just think it's a really cool thing for new users, new listeners, or new blog readers, new people to the website, people who are interested in our company and our coaching philosophy, what we do, so on and so forth, um, for them to use. And what I'm talking about right now is a training and a nutrition FAQ, frequently asked questions. So today I am going to record the training FAQ, and then by next week I should have the nutrition FAQ. And what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to transcribe this into a blog and this is going to be a Google Doc that my entire team has access to and we are forever updating. So as we get good questions from new clients, old clients, current clients, followers, whoever it may be, we're going to add questions and answers to this Google Doc that we all share and every month we are going to update the website. Whether that's with one question or 20 questions, we're going to constantly update this. Um, So I will keep you guys updated on that but we're going to start this by doing a podcast and I took the let's see, I got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, about like fifteen to twenty questions that I'm going to go over today that there are very frequently asked. Um, like I said, this is going to turn into a blog, and then I'm going to share the page once that's done. So I'll update you guys on here when that's done. So you guys will have a page that you can go to that constantly updates. Um, and I'm hoping this can be a hub for people to go when they want really good information about the basics. Like really, the like the science, all these things are cool, but what about the most fundamental things that we need to remember in order to enhance our training and get better results, stay injury-free, and keep progressing? This is what we're going to cover today. I'm really excited because we're going to touch on some of the most important things that you really, really, really need to understand when you go into your fat loss phase, your muscle building phase, your strength phase, any type of phase or any type of journey, transformation, so on and so forth that you're going to be embarking down. This is going to be your holy grail that gives you the answers and the things that you actually should be worrying about so you can stop stressing about the bullshit and the not so important things that most of us get confused by or overwhelmed with because it's in the media or because – they said, quote unquote. Um, So I'm really excited to record this. I'm excited to record the nutrition one as well. Um, And like I said, I'll keep you guys updated when we put this on the website so you guys can see the blog version, which is going to be constantly added to and updated, um, which I'm really excited to have that on the page as well. So um, before we get into it, guys, remember just real quick, there's a couple things you can do for me. First and foremost, please go leave us a five-star rating and review. We really do appreciate that. My goal is to keep cranking us up on the iTunes charts. The more people who do leave us a five-star rating and review, the more iTunes like us, uh, the more iTunes likes us, the more people are going to see this and the more people get better results. This is completely free and I just want people to share this message with me. Um, and then last but not least, the next best way you can do that and get this message more well spread is if you enjoyed this podcast, if you like this podcast, if I'm giving you information that is helping you in any way, shape, or form improve your life, please do us a favor and take a screenshot of the show, post it on your story, tag your boy at Cody.BoomBoom. Um, let me know who's listening to it. Let me know what episode you like and I want to hear from you specifically. All right, guys, without any further ado, Let's get on to the training FAQ. All right, to start this off, um, and like I said, these are all frequently asked questions from people on Instagram, Facebook, email, our current clients, so on and so forth. Uh, But these are literally questions that I've uh, searched around. I actually dug through my inboxes um, for a while and started copying and pasting them in my notes to get kind of the basis of what we're going to be covering today. So the first question is, straight sets or supersets? Which is better 
and when would you use one versus the other? So basically, um, if we look at what a straight set is, is a straight set is when I do three sets of 10. I do a squat by itself, I take a break, and I come back to it. A superset is when I superset that squat or that movement pattern with another exercise. So instead of it saying, like, for example, number one on your program is barbell squat, it would say 1A is a squat, 1B is a jump squat. So you might do a heavy loaded squat and then do a jump squat afterwards, right? That's a really good performance technique that a lot of people use. So which is better is a irrelevant question because it depends. It depends on many factors. If we are talking about sports performance, we may want to superset certain things um, to kind of create that uh, – post-potentiation phase, that activation phase. Uh, it's kind of like thinking of, of a power movement supersetted with – or I'm sorry, a strength movement supersetted with a power movement. I always look at those kind of like pulling an uh, arrow back on a uh, bow and arrow, right? You're loading the spring and then you're letting it rip. Um, certain things like that work really well. Now, there are supersets for hypertrophy, which are usually done as antagonists. Antagonist supersets are where I do an opposite movement pattern. These are very beneficial when we are trying to – create shorter rest periods. We're we're short on time. We can't get our volume in. So if we have a really long program and it takes us two hours, well, we can superset things and we can make it a little bit more efficient so we can get through our volume throughout the week faster. In this case, antagonist supersets are really, really good. And I use them quite a bit for fat loss clients to keep rest periods shorter, to keep somewhat of a metabolic factor involved, but also because a lot of people don't have time to spend hours and hours in the gym. So a good example is like if we look at the volume requirements for hypertrophy to build muscle, we would probably be in the gym for like two hours a session because there's a lot of volume. Volume is the key driver of growth. So we need to stay in the gym for quite a while. But if I can superset things, I can either be in the gym less days per week or I can be in the gym as just as many days, five, six days a week, but I can keep those shorter, those uh, sessions a little bit shorter. So in that case, I do like antagonist supersets. And this is where I would do a bench press supersetted with a barbell row or a overhead press supersetted with a chin-up, a barbell curl supersetted with a, a skull crusher or a tricep pushdown. So we're literally doing the opposite movement pattern and or the opposite muscle group. The only times I do not like this is when we're training legs. And when you get too carried away with legs because it's hard not to incorporate a little bit of everything on a lower body movement. So if you did a squat supersetted with an RDL, two things. Number one, yes, the squat is more quad dominant, but it doesn't mean your glutes and hamstrings are not activated in being a part of that movement. An RDL is much more hamstring focused, but you're still incorporating your core, your grip, your lower back, and those are involved in the squat as well. So the injury risk is a little bit higher when we're talking about lower body, especially because the weights and the loads are usually higher training lower body than they are training upper body. So for legs, I don't like it as much unless it's isolation work done towards the end of the program. This would be where we do a leg extension supersetted with a leg curl. In that case, I actually do really like it, and I actually think it creates more of a metabolite or lactic acid focus because when we get a bigger pump in our hamstrings, we're bringing blood flow localized to the limbs in general. We're going to have more blood flow, more of a pump in the quads, which is going to be great for overall growth because we know metabolites uh, accumulation, blood flow, that pump feeling, um, and they're even linking lactic acid to um, 
muscle growth as well. So this could be a benefit. However, doing big motor movements like the RDL, like the barbell squat, even like lunges superseded with RDLs don't make as much sense to me. So the only case I really do like this is doing isolation work. So a leg extension with a leg curl, a goblet squat with a Swiss ball hamstring curl, things like that do work well. But for the most part, I think antagonist supersets work really well for upper body specifically when you are in a rush or do not have as much time to train. Um, that's when I would use one or the other. The only other type of superset that we would consider is a uh, single body part giant set. And this is something made popular by um, – oh, what is his name? Milos uh, Sarvich. Sar- I can't remember his last name. But Milos is a very popular uh, – he's a legend in the European bodybuilding world. And he created giant sets. I believe it was M- Milos. If I'm incorrect and I got any – old school bodybuilding fans like me listening to the podcast, shoot me a DM and let me know. But um, this is where we would do a barbell bench press for, let's say, eight at a pretty heavy load or six to eight reps. Then we would move to a dumbbell incline bench press with a lighter weight for like 10 to 12. And then we would move to a pec deck or a cable fly for 12 to 15, pretty much failure. So we're basically starting heavier with a bigger, more compound movement. We're slowly decreasing the technical efficiency or technical requirements, the skill requirements, neurological requirements of the movement pattern or the exercise as we increase the fatigue um, extension of the set. So basically reps are going higher higher as we go, weights are getting lower as we go, and technical proficiency is getting easier as we go. So now we can pretty much push our muscle to almost complete failure. You Nine times out of ten, you go to failure on a true Milos giant set because you're usually supersetting three to five exercises. This is something that you would do towards the end of your session if you have like a push day. Um, for example, you would do like a barbell bench press, you would do your overhead press, you have your like motor unit big motor unit, big compound lifts. Later in the session, you might do a chest and a shoulder giant set at the end. So this saves you time, gives you a massive pump, and it is a good way to create more muscle damage, um, go towards fatigue a little bit more, and that might be advantageous for advantageous for hypertrophy. Um, so there's some situations that are better. Which is better, straight sets or supersets? Neither. Um, the only time I would say a straight set is better is if you have all the time in the world and your number one priority is strength and size. If you want to build as much muscle as possible and you want to get as strong as possible, straight sets are better. And the only reason they're better is because if I do a squat or a bench press or an overhead press or a weighted chin up or any movement, a curl, anything by itself, I can take more rest period and I usually can have a higher volume, right? Even if I do a barbell bent row after a bench press, Even though I'm distracting my chest and my triceps and my shoulders by doing a row and bringing blood flow into my lats and my traps and my rhomboids and I'm giving my chest and my my bench press musculature a break, I am still fatiguing my upper body, my grip, so on and so forth. And most likely my volume via intensity, so load, is actually going to lower on my next superset. I'm just getting fatigued. My heart rate's going up, so on and so forth. On a straight set, that is way lower. Your fatigue management is way better, and it's more likely able – you are more likely able to keep your volume higher. So I do think straight sets can be better. The problem is is that's unrealistic. You, if, if especially, especially as you get to an advanced state, 
you just can't spend more and more and more time. I'm a huge fan of supersets for the general population, for busy individuals, for parents. I know for me, all of my training, I almost superset everything. I just do not have time to be in the gym for more than an hour. So for me, I train five, six days a week, but I'm supersetting a ton of stuff. Like right now, I'm on crutches, so my training is different. But in general, that's usually the case. So there's no better, uh, but in some situations, straight sets might be better if you have time. In every other scenario, I think supersets are great for fat loss. I think they're great for keeping your rest period shorter, and I think they're great for allowing people to hit enough volume to grow without staying in the gym for hours and hours at a time. It's funny. As I'm thinking about this, my plan is to send this to Rev uh, or to a freelancer to actually transcribe this into a blog, and I'm just like, man, this blog is going to be like 20,000 words. I feel bad for the guy who's got to write this because <laughs> usually like on an FAQ, the answers are very short and to the point, uh, but not with me. Come on. We know this. I like to talk. So next question. How many or how much – sorry, how much volume is enough? How much is too much? This is a really good question, and once again, it depends. And it's funny because probably every single question I'm going to start with, it depends. But the amount of volume that is enough is the maximum recoverable volume. And if you really want to get in-depth with this method or this theory, you should go look up Dr. Mike Israel from Renaissance Periodization because he coined the term, and he kind of created this whole entire theory. And it's very, very smart. I think it's a good thing for people to be aware of when they start programming and looking at progressing their training over time. But the amount of volume that is enough is basically the maximum amount that you can recover from because we know from studies that you know there's even studies coming out that ultra high amounts of volume which is going to be in between 30 to 40 sets per muscle group per week is showing to be advantageous for people which is absurd that is so much volume but here's the thing is we can't really that amount of volume is not only hard to adhere to for most people but it's also like it's not feasible for some people because they can't recover from it. So what they've learned is that the the amount of volume that is enough to grow or the best or the most optimal to grow from is the amount of volume that is your maximum threshold, the amount of volume that you can push to and still recover and still do your training. So you shouldn't be like, yes, you should still deload every fourth or fifth week or sixth week. But you should never push your volume to 30 sets because that's what Brad Schoenfeld's study showed, yet you have not built up your own tolerance from a muscular, a joint, and a nervous system perspective to handle that amount of volume. I believe the best way to go is starting with in in between 10 to 15 sets per muscle group per uh, week. This is usually enough. Now, and and we got to think about this too. You can cut these numbers in half for smaller muscles like front deltoids or biceps or triceps because – Direct bicep work can be like six to eight sets per week because they're also going to be getting 10 to 20 sets from every row and pull down you get. It's not direct. It's an indirect stimulus, but it's still a stimulus to the muscle. Therefore, your elbows and everything are taking a hit. Your nervous system is taking a hit, and your muscles are being activated. So your biceps are still getting worked on general upper body work. Same with your triceps for pressing movements. So it's important to remember that. I would say 10 to 15 sets per week per muscle group is enough to see some growth. Um, and that's enough to maintain growth or maintain your size for the uh, advanced individual. So the advanced individual usually needs more than that. But when I have somebody come on board with me and starts training and they are not an advanced individual and our goal is to build muscle, burn fat, or build st- strength. Regardless, I'm looking at total volume. Um, Intensity might be different if we're going into a cut, obviously, but 
I'm probably going to start them at that 10 to 15 mark. Closer to 15 for the big movements, especially for pulling movements. So like hip hinge stuff like deadlifts and hip thrusts and RDLs and things like that. Um, rows, chins, pull downs, anything that's activating the back, like pull apart shrugs, things like that. Those are probably going to be closer to the 15 range. And all pushing anterior dominant stuff in the front side is going to be closer to 10. Um, we're going to see where this is at. If they start progressing, I'm not going to change a thing. Let's just progressively overload the weight on everything and just watch your body change with that 10 to 15 because the minimal effective dose is always going to be best. If you can grow from 10, why would you push your body to 20? You're just smashing your nervous system too early and then you have way less room to grow from, right? You're going to get the same stimulus except you're going to have to take more recovery times. You're probably not going to be ready for it and that's going to send you into overtraining versus actually recovering enough and actually progressing. So I would always start at that 10 to 15 mark. I think that is enough volume per muscle group per week. Um, and you want to slowly work yourself to that 20 mark. 20 to 25 sets per muscle group per week has been shown time and time again to be a very solid range for most people to grow and it can be pretty much universal. What you need to remember is the, the smaller muscle groups that get hit by doing other things frequently need to be about half that. So you can cut that in half for biceps, triceps, front delts. Um, side delts and rear delts do need to hit, be, be hit more frequently because they're just stubborn growers for most people. Calves can be cut in half for most people because you step and walk every day, except there's a lot of people who simply do not have good calves and they just struggle to grow their calves and those people can use that 15 to 25 model. Um, and then last but not least, I would say your abs can be cut in half as well because your abs, whether you realize it or not, are being activated pretty harshly in a deadlift, in a bench press, in an overhead press, so on and so forth. So I would say that start at 10 to 15, slowly move up to 15 to 20, and then eventually 20 to 25. To 25. I don't think anybody really needs to go over that. Going over that means you're going to be in the gym so long every session or too frequently. It's, it's very – it's hard to – it's not feasible for most people with a regular life. If you are a competitive bodybuilder and this is your life, it might be a different scenario. But in most cases, I think that 20 to 25 is like the sweet spot we all want to work up to. And then our goal is to progress our weight and our strength in that volume load. So if we can hit that volume and then slowly get stronger within that volume range, I think that's the key to true growth long term. Low rep versus high rep. When to use which? So – I think you should always use both. There is no better rep zone um, and studies have shown that you can build strength with high rep training. So let's say eight plus and you can build muscle hypertrophy with low rep, let's say three to six range. The difference is, is it's all volume, right? So if I lift three sets of six at a certain weight, I can lift that same amount of volume at two sets of 10 or whatever it may be because you're doing more reps. If you look at sets times reps times weight lifted, as long as that equation ends up being the same, and they've shown this in studies, it doesn't matter if you do low rep or high rep. They equated that equation, that that rep times set times weight, um, and they just did a group with low rep and a group with high rep, and they saw the same result. The only difference here is that in the low rep group, you saw more nervous system fatigue, um, which is going – and longer in the gym because if you're doing sets of three and four and five – 
you just need longer rest periods. You're lifting heavier weights. You got to take more warm up sets, and then you're doing less reps, so it, you have way more sets. It takes way longer in the gym. Uh, because of that, it might be more advantageous for higher rep training. Let's say eight to fifteen rep range for people looking to build muscle or change their physique, so even fat loss. Simply because you won't need to spend as much time in the gym. Um, the other reason is because it's less neurologically fatiguing. So that nervous system is being drained more in low rep training. The reason being is because strength work, low rep strength work is more neurologically based, which means your nervous system is more active um, in fighting a little bit harder, working a little bit harder in that low strength zone. So that like zero, that one to five rep range, your nervous system is working way harder than it is in that eight to 12 rep range. Because of that, you're going to need to take more deloads. You're going to have harder recovery between sessions, so on and so forth. So if your goal is hypertrophy, building muscle or changing your physique, you might want to do more of the higher rep training, that 8 to 12 range, because you can do more it, more of it more frequently, which means you can train more times throughout the week than you can if you're doing very low rep training. Um, now, because we know that volume equated is better, we have to look at like, okay, low rep training is more neurologically fatiguing, which is actually a good thing. We want to train our nervous system because that's how we get stronger. We want to get stronger if we want to progress our volume in that 8 to 12, meaning if I can do 8 reps with 200 pounds, that's great. But if I could lift 225 pounds for 8 reps, I'm going to build more muscle. That's more stress on the body. The only way I'm going to get stronger um, after a while, like right, if you do 8s and 8s and 8s for a while, you're going to get stronger at it. But at a certain point, there's diminishing returns. You need to create a new stimulus and you need your nervous system to adapt and get stronger in order to do more uh, weight for those 8 reps. The best way to do that, low rep training for three reps, right? Get stronger and then come back to the eight reps. Now, classically, there's linear periodization. Um, there's multiple models of linear periodization, but classically, people would do a strength phase. So you spend four to eight weeks doing low rep training, get really strong, and then you spend, let's say if your goal is building muscle, you would spend like eight to 12 weeks, so a little bit more time doing hypertrophy, and then you come back to building strength. The only problem I see with this is usually when you swing back to strength, you spend at least two, if not three to four weeks trying to get your weight back to where you were because it's a neurological thing. It's a skill component thing. So if I haven't been benching super heavy and I haven't been hitting those threes and fours and fives in a long time, I'm going to spend a few weeks trying to work back up to the, the heaviest weights I got to. And then I only have a few weeks trying to progress on that before I switch to the next phase of hypertrophy. Whereas if you use a daily undulated system, meaning one day of the week I'm doing legs at a lower rep, one day I'm doing legs at a higher rep, I'm always going to have that neurological stimulus. Now, I will not get as strong as quickly doing that, but I will keep that strength longer. So if we look at a year plan or a six-month plan, I think it's way more advantageous to do a little bit of both. Um, there's also studies that show maintaining muscle during a cut is uh, you're going to have more ad advantage with that if you're still hitting some low rep training. So when to use which? I would say all the time. I think you should always use both. Um, now, if you're a power lifter, it changes. That's a very specific sport. But if you're a bodybuilder, if you're a general population client, somebody who like me who just wants to be the best they can be, I want to look the best I can look. I want to be strong, but I really want to have big muscles and I want to stay lean. The best way for us to do this is to hit each movement pattern in the low rep range and the high rep range. So I will do a overhead press in the 8 to 12 rep range and I will also do a overhead press in the let's say 3 to 5 rep range every single week. Same with bench press, same with deadlift, same with squats, same with everything, right? Now, the only time I change this is 
when I want to switch every three to four weeks. So I might do a bench press for five reps and then an overhead press for 10 reps. So I'm still doing low and high. I'm doing different movement patterns, but a lot of the same musculature. After three to four weeks, I switch it. Low rep, overhead press, high rep, bench press, right? That's another good way to do it. But no matter what, I'm still working low rep ranges and high rep ranges every single week. And I think this is the most advantageous way to program. I think this is the most effective way that we see our clients get results. High-intensity interval training versus low-intensity steady state. What's more effective? So we're talking cardio here. Um, What's more effective? If we just look at this as a blanket statement, I would say high-intensity interval training is more effective. The reason I would say that is because you burn more calories in a shorter amount of time. So if we look at one day and I have an hour to get as much calorie burn as possible, I'm going to choose HIT because I could burn – what I could burn with low intensity cardio for an hour, I could burn double in 30 minutes. So because in in 15 minutes, I could probably burn the same with hit that I could with less in an hour. The reason being is because you're going at a higher intensity. Your heart rate's going up. You're burning more quickly. And then we have the epoch effect, excess post-oxygen consumption, meaning after you're actually done with that cardio bout, your body is still pulling in oxygen to the white blood cells. That is going to create more of a caloric burn and you're going to expend more calories after you are done doing cardio. And that means more calorie burn over the day, right? Um, I do believe that. However, if we look at a long-term standpoint, so if I'm working with somebody for three plus months, I might say less. And the reason I would say that is because high-intensity interval training is much more taxing on damn near every system in your body, but especially your nervous system. So you can only do so much. And as your fatigue goes up, your performance goes down. And if your performance is going down, that hit is going to be less effective because you're not getting as much work and output, maximal output during the hit intervals. On top of that, if your fatigue is going down and your perfor- or fatigue is going up, performance is going down, that means it's also going down in your strength training workouts. And those are your bread and butter. That's the most important sessions you have per week. So HIT can be disadvantageous because it can negatively impact the rest of our training. It can, it can negatively impact our fatigue management. Um, and then we end up in a shitty situation. So HIT is more effective in the short sense because you can save time. You can burn a lot of calories. But LIS is more effective in the long term for most people because – You never really get overly fatigued with it unless you're doing hours of it and you're in an extreme deficit getting on stage. If you're doing, let's say, four days a week of lifting and two days of cardio and you're doing 30 to 40 minutes of lists, you're really never going to put yourself into a rut because that's not enough. But you're still getting a caloric burn. Yes, it's boring because you're walking and doing nothing for up to an hour. But you're straight burning calories and you're not damaging the nervous system and that allows you to recover for your strength training. The other reason I really like LIS is because it's more parasympathetic and less sympathetic. Hit intervals are very sympathetic. And if we look at energy systems, right, your metabolic pathways, when we strength train, it's very similar to high-intensity cardio. I do a heavy squat. I do five reps. It takes me no longer than 30 seconds. So let's say 15 to 30 seconds. My heart rate goes through the roof, and then I sit down for two minutes and rest until I can get back onto the bar. That's a hit interval. I go really hard for 15 to 30 seconds. My heart rate goes through the roof. I completely stop for two minutes, and then when I'm ready to go back to that max output, I go at it again. 
So that's a certain metabolic pathway. That's a certain energy system. LIS is a completely different energy system. So not only is this going to help us recover, like I just mentioned, but this might also be advantageous to fat loss. And I've actually seen this personally and with clients using different energy systems allows the body uh, – it forces the body to be less adaptive. It, it makes it harder for the body to actually adapt to what you're doing. And if we look at cardio, we don't want to adapt. The more we adapt, the less calories we burn. If we get good at cardio, we're more efficient at it. And if we're more efficient at it, we burn less fuel, a.k.a. calories, a.k.a. fat, to get the job done. So we don't want to be efficient. But if we're constantly varying our energy systems, then it's going to be very hard for our body to adapt and burn more fat. So for that reason, I really, really like LIS. HIT has its place. Um, for many people, it's necessary to add a little bit of HIT because it is effective. You just have to be very cautious of your recovery demands. I'm a big fan of doing 50-50. A little bit of HIT, a little bit of LIS. And if we're going for an extreme result, getting shredded or getting super lean or we have a deadline for a wedding, a photo shoot, bikini competition, anything like that, I'm a bigger fan of LIS because – you can add more of it and we need more of it to get you really lean um, without causing very much fatigue. Um, and if you're committing to a goal like that, I know you're going to be ready to commit some time to the process. Does miss moderate intensity, steady state cardio ever have a place? This is a really good question and I think yes, it does. I think moderate intensity, steady state cardio has more of a place in your plan if you actually enjoy running or biking or anything like that. If you just enjoy the act of that moderately intense cardio, I think it's important for you to add it in because I think it's a psychological benefit. However, it's probably one of the more damaging types and fatiguing types of cardio you can do. It's going to have a similar effect on your nervous system as hit because you are hitting that intensity um, and you're still going for a long duration. So usually people, let's say, walk for lists for an hour or 30 minutes to an hour. Usually people go jog or run for 30 minutes to an hour as well. So not only are you having the same duration as lists, but you're having – Close to the same. It's not. I'm not going to say it's the same nervous system fatigue as HIT, but it's close to the same neurological fatigue as HIT cardio. Now we kind of have the both of uh, worse worlds, right? List, you're doing it too long. HIT, you're doing it too intense. We're right in the middle, doing a little bit of both. That's going to be more impactful for overall fatigue. Add to that, most miss unless you're doing sled poles or a, a stationary bike. Most of it has a lot of damage on the joints. If we go on a run, for example, I want to say a mile is like 1,600 steps. That's 800 hops on each joint, knee, ankle. So you're literally jumping and kind of pounding on the joints. It's going to cause a lot of joint compression, um, a lot of overuse injuries in your legs. Um, might not be the most advantageous thing. Like I said, if you don't just enjoy competitive running like marathons, stuff like that, or it's a psychological thing, kind of like a meditative practice for you, I don't advise moderate intensity cardio. The only other place that we need to implement moderate intensity cardio is with athletic performance. Crossfitters, soccer players, basketball players, anybody who is on a field or a sport and is playing at a moderate or high intensity or a varied intensity for a long period of time should probably in introduce multiple intensity zones into their training. You need to be ready to sprint, jog, sprint, jog, walk, sprint, rest. If you need to be like that for your sport, which is all those sports I just talked about, you probably should do some hit, you should do some list, and you should do some miss um, because you need to be ready. It's not about body composition here. It's about being athletically prepared to perform in your sport. 
In that sense, my recommendation is doing non-eccentric loading moderate intensity cardio. What this is is movement patterns or exercise equipment using exercise equipment that does not require actually centric loads. So sled pulls are a great example. Every time you take a step, you're doing a concentric movement, but there's no negative phase. There's no eccentric load between steps. An assault bike, there's a lot of resistance and a lot of hard lactic acid base like pushes on the concentric, but there is no negative or eccentric movement. So things like this are very, very good. Rower is another example. You're pulling, but you're never like slowly pulling back. Like if you do a chin up, you pull yourself up and you slowly control down. That controlling down is more fatiguing than it is to control up, whether you realize it or not. That eccentric or negative is harder than the concentric or the positive on your nervous system and on your body. Um, So if you're going to choose miss, it probably should be for athletic reasons and it should be using a sled, a rower, or an assault bike in my opinion. Are machines effective for strength and hypertrophy? 100%. Machines, um, I mean, we got to look at it like this. Your body's musculature is stupid. It knows tension and it knows resistance and it knows overload. So it doesn't really know if you're using a incline hammer strength or an incline dumbbell or an incline barbell. All it knows is these muscles are working. Now, you can argue that a dumbbell incline press uses a lot more of your stabilizers um, and it's probably more functional and I would agree with both of those statements. Therefore, I do believe it has more advantage, more benefits, and I recommend it more frequently. But if we're just talking about effectiveness for building strength or building muscle, machines, cables, free weights, barbells, it doesn't matter. Resistance is resistance, tension is tension, and progressive overload is progressive overload. So any way you can add that is going to be advantageous. And for most people trying to build muscle, I do recommend a lot of machines. Leg press, cable, leg extensions, leg curls. We're strictly trying to create tension. And sometimes after you're already fatigued from doing the free weight compound movements, it's best to jump on a machine and allow yourself to overload to a point of close or near failure. That is is going to be advantageous for muscle growth. So I do think machines are effective for strength and hypertrophy. Um, I think it all depends on the setting. I don't think they replace any free weight or compound movements, but they are absolutely effective for strength and hypertrophy. Hey guys, I want to take a brief moment to remind you about the Boom Boom Elite, our membership site. This is literally the perfect place for you. The reason I know this is because you're listening to this podcast and anybody who listens to this podcast is a go-getter and an action taker. You are a person who is seeking information and education to better your body, better your performance, and finally transform your physique. I know this because people listening to this podcast really just seek results. And the one way to get better results is better training programs, but not only intelligently designed programs that actually build in progressions and avoid injuries along the way, but a place that's actually going to teach you how those programs are built. See, a lot of coaches and clients alike have insecurities about what they're putting on the piece of paper. Whether you're programming for yourself or you're programming for your clients, you probably have an insecurity or a lack of confidence in the programs you are creating. You probably question yourself. Are these programs actually going to work? Am I going to get injured along the way? When a plateau happens because it's bound to happen, what do I do? How do I adjust? How do I move through this plateau and finally start seeing results again? See, the Boom Boom Elite is not only a place to give you the programs that avoid these things and actually give you results, have built-in progressions, and make sure that you're not getting injured along the way, but it's a place that's going to educate you on how those things are actually built into the programs. So now, you have longevity in your results. You can actually adhere to them because you know what the hell is going on behind the scenes, and you can start creating your own programs 
that actually work and you have the confidence to know that they will work. So next time you put whatever you put on the piece of paper, you and your clients are confident and feel comfortable and actually believe in the system. Not to mention they're actually going to get results, which is the reason why we do this in the first place. So because you're listening to this podcast and because I know you're perfect for this, I wanted to take a second to just remind you about the membership site because this is the place that I spend every single day communicating with the environment, communicating with the community about training, about nutrition, about supplementation, about all the things that go into side of coaching. So if you want access to the Boom Boom Elite, click the link in the description below. Or go to boomboomperformance.com slash elite and sign up today. And without any further ado, let's get back onto this podcast. Is CrossFit effective for fat loss? So CrossFit can be effective for fat loss, yes. Exercise is exercise. Caloric expenditure is caloric expenditure. The problem I see with most people trying to purely lose fat with CrossFit um, is there's not a lot of controlled variabilities because it is a sport. Right, so if we look at bodybuilding, um, we can add, you know, four days of lifting with a specific amount of volume, specific rest periods, and two sessions of thirty-minute cardio. These are controlled variables, and after three weeks, it's been working. Four weeks, it slows down. Fifth week, let's say you plateaued. I know that I can make those thirty-minute sessions forty minutes, and I can make that twenty sets of volume, twenty-one sets of volume. Those are small incremental changes, but they are changes and they are controlled variables that we can enhance to effectively lose more fat or build more muscle. CrossFit does not have this. It's very random. There's a lot of things just being thrown at it, and that's okay. It's an athletic sport. If we look at soccer, we do not know how many steps we're going to take, how many shots we're going to kick, how many – uh, how, how often we're going to be playing. We don't know the duration of sprints we're going to take. It's all random because it's an athletic sport. Uh, football, you don't know how many times you're going to get tackled, how many times you're going to throw, how many times you're going to run. It's all random. It's variability, right? So that's the biggest reason I think it's not as effective. Um, I also think there's a higher risk potential because there's a lot of nervous system dominant training. And then there's also a lot of very, very high rep, which is just overall fatiguing stuff. And again, it's very random. Um, effective fat loss mostly comes from nutrition. And I think if you're going to step into CrossFit for fat loss, you need to be ready to supply your body with enough nutritional needs um, and fuel to actually sustain the performance. If you can focus on performance and CrossFit, I think you're going to have better chances of losing fat than you would if not. Um, the most effective way to lose fat during CrossFit is going to be carb cycling in my opinion. The reason I say this is because I would recommend somebody doing CrossFit for fat loss only to do CrossFit three times a week. Those three sessions, we are going to pump carbs in around your training so that you can perform maximally, lower risk injury, and actually improve through the modalities you're training. On the other three days of training, because we're going to say you're training for six days a week, we're going to do a little bit of bodybuilding and a little bit of cardio. Very controlled, very lower intensity, but it's some. It's a day that we can lower calories and not worry about injury risk. Those are going to be your fat loss days. Um, as a whole, I do not think CrossFit is the most effective thing for fat loss. Um, but I do believe it can be if you supply your body with the right nutrition, if you sleep enough, if you recover, um, and it obviously works. You know, I think I think I think it takes longer um, to get ripped from CrossFit. But if you look at the people who perform exponentially well in CrossFit, 
they're usually pretty lean. And I think the reason is is because they've focused on performance and performance alone the whole time. Eventually, their body keeps burning fat and keeps burning fat until they get to a very lean place. But it's probably a slow process there. Or they were lean before they started CrossFit. Um, so there's a couple things. I, it's not something I recommend to people that come to me that are saying, hey, I want to lose fat. What should I jump into? We're usually going to jump into strength training, cardio, and nutrition. We're not going to go, okay, let's jump into CrossFit. If somebody tells me they already do CrossFit but they need to cut weight, I'm not going to tell them to stop CrossFit because that's what they love. And the most important thing we need to remember is adherence is key number one. Enjoyment is key number two. So if the only way for you to enjoy training and keep adhering is CrossFit, then we're going to keep doing CrossFit. I'm just going to add a little bit of low intensity, focus on your sleep, and I'm going to make sure that we're not taking a huge deficit, especially on most days, so that you can actually recover from what you're doing because CrossFit is more intense neurologically. Um, Yeah. Is CrossFit effective for hypertrophy? So the other question I always get is can you build muscle with CrossFit? I think it's obvious that you can because there's a lot of jacked human beings that do CrossFit. Um, But if you look at their musculature, they're jacked in specific places. They usually have really big quads, really big glutes, really big upper backs and shoulders. The reason being is because they do a lot of deadlifts, a lot of squats, and a lot of High pulls, a lot of snatches, a lot of cleans, a lot of rowing. All those things are very, very upper back dominant. So you get kind of jacked in certain places. What The reason they get jacked in those places, number one, is frequency. They're constantly hitting those muscles. So they're constantly sending a growth signal to the, that musculature to adapt. You can't send that signal over and over and over again and not see an adaptation. The second reason is volume, right? So if they're doing rowing and cleans and snatches and squats and all these things that frequently, their volume is going to be through the roof. And this is something people forget. Their volume is super high for these muscle muscle groups. They don't have like super defined chest, super defined biceps, super defined triceps or calves and things like that um, very often because they're not isolating those muscle groups. They're not isolating their side delts doing lateral raises very often. But they're hitting their muscles, all these specific muscles, the big movers basically, your shoulders, glutes, quads, upper back – on a very frequent basis and they're doing it in such a frequent basis that their volume is actually super high. Um, and then last but not least, I would actually say, especially with the latest literature coming out on lactic acid, that lactic acid can be tied to muscle growth. I think that's a big key component. The assault bike, 21 rep burpees or overhead press and squat thrusters and swings and everything like that. These super high rep sets accumulate a ton of metabolites, a ton of lactic acid, and that's going to lead to growth. Um, so I think it is effective for hypertrophy. I don't think it's as effective. This is the exact same answer as the effective for fat loss question. I think it can work, and I think for a lot of people it does because the frequency and volume for certain muscle groups is very high. But I don't think it's the most advantageous because it is uncontrolled variables. If somebody comes to me as a physique athlete and says, I need to bring up my lats and my glutes – I can specifically target those muscles with more volume and I can progress that week to week. With CrossFit, it's very random and it's very interchangeable, which is because it's that, that's the way the sport is. It's constantly changing every week and I can't control the specific volume as much. Because of that, as a coach, it makes me very hard for me to guarantee a specific hypertrophy result. How to substitute exercises? When is it okay to do so? I think it's okay to do so anytime that you physically cannot do a movement and you have something that can replace it that can replace it with the same type of stimulus. So what I mean by that is if I need to do a 
close stance Smith machine squat. Let's say it's on the program, close stance Smith machine squat, which is a very like high tension, high like like long duration resistance curve. So if you think about a Smith machine, it's basically like constant tension um, and a close stance is going to be very quad dominant. So let me think about this. How can I create long duration of constant tension while keeping a close stance, but I don't have a Smith machine? Well, what I could do is I could do a kettlebell goblet dumbbell split squat with no lockout. So now I'm substituting for an exercise that I can really isolate my quad. Let's say I do like an elevated, so it's a deficit. So it's extended range of motion, so I'm standing on plates. My knee has to travel further, which creates more of a stretch. That's going to mimic similar to that close stance. Um, I can hold a kettlebell and not lock out. So when I don't lock out, I never release that tension. Because I'm not releasing that tension, it keeps my resistance curve very frequent, which is very similar to the Smith machine. Um, or a close stance goblet squat without a lockout. Same thing, heels elevated. You can do something like that. So I think it's okay as long as you can mimic the, the movement pattern um, and create a very similar like resistance curve, tension, or stimulus. If somebody has a barbell box squat for five and you change it for a double kettlebell front squat and you're like, hey, it's the same movement pattern. It's a squat. Yes, it is, but a box squat is much more hip dominant. You have to very, sit further back, which is more glute dominant. It's also loaded on your back, not your front. That's a completely different loading pattern, which is going to completely change the type of exercise and the, uh, uh, the center of gravity of your movement. Um, it's also a different resistance curve. It's a different load. You, can't, you can put way more on your back than you can on a double kettlebell goblet squat. Right, So that makes it more challenging too, which is why I would have changed the Smith machine to a split squat because a Smith machine, I can definitely go heavier than I can with a kettlebell split squat. However, when I do a split squat, I'm isolating one leg. So whatever I did on that Smith machine, I can split that load in half since I had two legs. It was a bilateral movement. So I think it really depends. It's okay to substitute exercises if you have to, but you want to target the same movement pattern and you want to target the same resistance curve or tension stimulus. That way you're getting the same benefit. There's a reason things are inside the program. Order of exercises in a program. Does it matter if I change things around? Yes, it does. So there's very rare cases where I will allow somebody to switch and swap exercises around. Most of the time, if we look at a training program, specifically the Boom Boom Performance style, like the method of our training programs, there is an exercise sequencing pattern that happens. We are aware of your joint health, your nervous system activity, and your energy and fatigue management. Because of these three things, there's a certain order of operations for every single program. There's a phase in the beginning where we activate muscles to make your joints move a little bit more efficiently during the compounds lifts, which come next. At that point, you are warmed up but not fatigued, which means your energy and fatigue management is at the best point it's going to be during your workout. This is the period of time we want to prioritize compound lifts, the things that have the highest skill acquisition and also the highest risk of injury. We want the most alertness, the most focus, and the most energy and the least fatigue during this movement. After that, we are going to go into an optimization phase. This is where we don't need as much energy or fatigue management, but we are doing more technical things like lunges and unilateral movements. So it still takes some skill, still takes some awareness, but you still have energy to go through them. And then last but not least, we have finishers, metabolite training, metabolic stuff, where we don't need as much focus because the risk of injury is super low, like a curl. You don't need much thought process to do a curl. You're also not going to lift as much weight, so you don't need as much energy, and you can be a little fatigued going into that. 
However, we are going to burn you out at that point. We want to use every last little bit of you energy-wise to get through the end of the session. So there's a reason for this. And because of that, I do not like people changing the order of exercises around because it's an appetite for getting injured. If I go, oh, shit, the, you know, the barbells, the racks are all taken, so I'm going to wait uh, instead of waiting, like let's say you had to either wait five minutes for somebody to be done on the squat rack or you had to do your hip thrust instead first. You're impatient, so you do your hip thrust first. Now I've fatigued my glutes. I've taken all the blood flow out of my quads, and I've potentially fatigued my low back a little bit, and I've drained some energy. My nervous system, my, my metabolic energy, my heart rate, everything went up, right? So now I go back to the squat. My legs are more fatigued in my glutes, so my quads are less fired up. And my low back is potentially fatigued. This is going to create more risk of injury and it's going to cause a lower total intensity and volume during that set. That means that the squat is going to be less beneficial. I'm going to get less results from that squat I'm doing because I have less energy and I'm more fatigued in the areas I do not want to be fatigued in if I'm trying to avoid injury. So for all those reasons, I believe the order of exercises, the exercise sequencing inside of a program, especially the Boom Boom Performance Method, it's very important and it's not smart to change them around. Is training fasted fine to do? Yes. Next question. No, but seriously, um, it's totally fine. I, I think a lot of people stress too much about this. Um, at the end of the day, we got to remember when we consume food, calories, protein, glucose, so on and so forth, it's floating around in our bloodstream. It's floating around in our muscle cells. It's going to be ready to use 24 to 36 hours later in most cases. Now, studies have shown it's not advantageous, so it's not a good thing to not consume protein for a long, long time and then train. Now, I would say like overnight, 8 to 12 hours is fine. But when you're pushing 24-hour fast and stuff, I don't think it's smart. Um, most cases, I do recommend protein prior to working out simply because I think it will help muscle protein breakdown. I think it helps with recovery, and it's going to facilitate just better results. I've seen it time and time again. I don't think fasted training has a better result for most people. The only time I see fasted training useful is – a, somebody has to work out super early in the morning and they will get nauseous or literally sick if they consume food at 5 in the morning and then train at 5.30. Totally get it. It's not going to kill you. You had a big meal for dinner. So you had protein and carbohydrates for dinner less than 10 hours ago. That meal is actually what's going to be converted, broken down, digested, absorbed in the system, stored as glycogen in your muscle cells and actually used at that morning training. So for example, for me, I train in the morning at about 7 a.m. I don't eat before that. I have a, a casein protein shake. I have a protein shake for one reason. Number one is because I want protein available so I don't break down muscle. It just makes me feel better, but it's easy on my stomach. I have carbohydrates the night before that is going to supply me the nutrients needed for my actual performance from an energy standpoint. Um, there's some studies that showed casein protein might be more advantageous. Well, it is more advantageous in this study uh, for fat loss during a session compared to fasted or whey, which surprised me. And I don't rush to a meal right afterwards, so the slow digestion of the casein works out well for me. I drink it at about 6 to 6.30. I know it's going to be still digesting and breaking down in my system throughout the training session and right after, so I don't have to rush to a meal. That's why I like it. And the study kind of convinced me that it might be better for fat loss. Might be splitting hairs, but it has been shown. That being said, I do not like making people eat before if they train super in the early in the morning and it makes them nauseous or sick. I think that in some athletic or performance-based exercises like a high conditioning or metabolic 
conditioning style workout like CrossFit, um, depending on the workout, like let's say it's like a rowing or an endurance-based workout, um, sometimes people feel – there's no study to show this, but I've, I've worked with clients that – It allows me to believe that oxygen consumption might be better if you are fasted, meaning you can just take in breaths. You can do more work and just get more done if you don't have any food in your stomach. Um, There are some pathways in the digestion process that may interfere with that, and that's why I believe it's probably occurring. But there's no evidence. It's all anecdote. Um, That's just what I've seen. So last but not least, it kind of comes down to how you feel. Some people feel more focused, and I understand that because when we consume food, there is a parasympathetic response to digestion and that makes people sometimes feel like kind of drowsy or tired or they want to take a nap. They're not super focused and therefore they don't have as much clarity during a training session, which I think there's advantages to having a lot of clarity during a training session as well. And I can agree to that. Um, That's why I train early is because after a full day of work and multiple meals, I do feel a little bit more fatigued and tired mentally. So I like training in the morning because I feel more focused and less bothered. Um, So is training fasted to do? Yes, it's absolutely okay. You're not going to burn off muscle. You're not going to die. You're not going to kill yourself, not going to hurt yourself, not going to have any negative impact, no negative results. It's totally okay. Uh, The only things I would say is you don't want to train if you've been fasting all day. So if you started fasting at 8 p.m. tonight and you're doing a 24-hour fast and you plan on training at that like 20 to 24 hour mark, I would not recommend that. I don't think it's very safe. I think your performance is going to be very poor. I think you're going to get less results. Um, And again, it's just not the safest thing. I do believe for insulin, blood sugar, uh, just energy, mental fatigue, things like that. I do think it's important. Hydration. I think it's important to have some food for a meal. Um, There's studies that show no difference between training, uh, training or cardio fasted versus non-fasted. So you're not going to get any added benefit from doing fasted training. There are some studies that show it might be more advantageous for building muscle and strength if you are fed prior. So if your goal is building muscle or building strength, I do think you should have some food before. If it does not fit with your lifestyle, it's harder for you to adhere to or you train so early in the morning that it makes you nauseous when you eat first, then train fasted, but make sure your meal the night before supports good performance. That's going to look like a good amount of protein and a good amount of carbohydrates. Best training for fat loss. The best training for fat loss is a combination of strength training and um, cardio. I think the best training for fat loss is probably going to be full body strength training. We never want to rely solely on cardio. Cardio is an added tool. It's a tool that we can add that little bit in. It helps you get that extra 5 to 10% of caloric expenditure to lose more fat. But at the end of the day, strength training is your bread and butter. You want to lift weights. In the long run, you're going to build more muscle. You're going to have a better metabolic uh, effect from it. You're going to have a better hormonal effect. You're going to have more calories burned throughout the rest of the day. Like it's just strength training is going to be your bread and butter. That's going to lead to more fat loss. After you lock in your strength training four or five, six days a week, however much, and you hit a plateau in your fat loss because you are prioritizing nutrition to lose fat and you don't want to cut more calories, at that point you can start adding in more cardio. Um, and there's also advantages to cardio from a, um, a recovery standpoint, an oxygen consu- standpoint, a performance standpoint. So there's nothing wrong with adding in cardio before you plateau. But if we're strictly speaking of fat loss, there's no desire or, or crucially – crucial reason or necessity to add cardio in prior to a plateau. I don't think we should rely on it. Strength training is going to be your best type of training for fat loss. I typically recommend full body. I think you'll burn more calories in a full body session. Um, 
But if we're not doing full body, I would probably say an upper-lower split because you're using a lot of supersets and antagonist supersets like I talked about earlier where we're doing like pushing and pulling together, so on and so forth. Best training split or splits for results. So there's so many training splits. I think at the end of the day, the most important thing to remember when choosing the best training split is going to be what you can adhere to. I'm going to link a blog that I wrote on this, finding your best training split um, in the show notes. But at the end of the day, you got to think of what you can adhere to and enjoy the most. So there's some people that just love bro splits, right? Like doing chest, then back, then arms, then legs, then shoulders and calves or whatever it is. If that's what they enjoy, like at the end of the day, what's most important is volume. So just make sure your volume landmarks, so you're hitting the amount of volume you need per week um, and, and go with it. So that's like level one if we're just talking about order of importance here. Adherence is number one. Do what you enjoy most. Level two is going to be looking at optimization. So a bro split doing one body part per week. Or two if you're doing like back and biceps, for example, like a primary and a secondary body part. But a bro split is probably not going to be the most advantageous for volume because if we look at total volume, even if you match up the sets, I do believe an upper lower split or a push-pull legs or a posterior anterior or a full body, any way that you can split up your muscle groups throughout the week a little bit more frequently, I think you're going to get a better result. And they've shown this in studies that shows two times a week is like kind of the sweet spot of hitting a muscle group per week. If we equate volume technically by theory, um, scientific theory, we would say that no matter what split it is, no matter how many times a week you hit a muscle group, if your volume is equated, you will see results. The problem I see with this is if you hit a muscle group one time per week, you are less likely to have high loads throughout that day. Meaning if I do bench press and then incline bench press and then dumbbell floor press and then cable flies and pec deck and I'm like literally just demolishing my chest and then I do dips by the time I get to the like sixth or seventh chest exercise the weight I'm lifting is so low because my chest is so fatigued now if I cut those in half and do them on two separate days I'm doing way more load with the exercises that were the exact same if they were on the same day, but now they're on two different days. For that reason, I think your results are going to be better because your overall volume, if you look at sets times reps times weight lifted, is going to be higher. Um, So because of that, I think the absolute best split um, is going to be splitting your groups up. So because of that, I think the best splits are going to either be an upper-lower split or a push-pull legs. Both of these prioritize... Um, a couple things. Number one, you can sit there and focus on a muscle group. So on an upper lower split, I can do a chest exercise and then another chest exercise and then maybe some uh, shoulder exercises and then sprinkle in back exercises. But because I'm like focused on just my upper body, I can find that pump. I can find that mind-muscle connection. It's a little bit easier. A full body program, it's going to be a little bit harder to do that because I might start with a bench press and then I go to a lunge and then I go to a pull and that's great and it's still going to give you a, a really good result and we program full body for a lot of clients, especially fat loss. Uh, my next ebook that launches April 1st, super excited about this because it's, it's something that we've never done before, like the style of programming, everything. It's Super, super excited for you guys to see this one, but that's a full body program. Um, so I believe in them and I like them. The problem there is, is as soon as I start feeling my chest work, I'm like, okay, now I'm starting to get that mind muscle connection, that focus, that internal drive. Now I'm going to do a squat completely different. 
I take my distraction somewhere else. Um, that's going to be harder for a lot of people who have trouble activating or really feeling a muscle work. Uh, but an upper-lower program can do that. A push-pull legs can do that as well because a push workout, I'm doing all chest and shoulders and triceps. I'm staying in those categories, and I'm really focused on finding that connection. Um, I like that. Both of these styles of programs also hit the frequency of twice a week per muscle group per week. That's going to be most advantageous. And both of these support the idea of not being in the gym for too long. A full-body hypertrophy program can be pretty long. If we're really focused on hitting enough volume, you might be in the gym for quite a while unless you're doing – full body six days a week. And if you do full body six days a week, it can be really, really taxing. Um, an upper lower split and a push pull legs, I might only need an hour at most to hit all my volume for a push day twice a week. That's pretty easy to do. 10 sets of chest and shoulders on one day, 10 sets of chest and shoulders on another day. You literally hit the maximum, like not the maximum, but a really high amount of volume, 20 sets total per week per muscle group. And it doesn't take hours and hours. So you're in and out of the gym in an hour. I really do like that. And I've just found for people trying to build muscle or even trying to pe- people trying to just build a physique so lose fat while maintaining muscle, push-pull legs and upper-lower splits tend to be the most advantageous. Those are my two favorite training splits and what I have seen that shows the best result with my body personally and a lot of my clients. How long should each session be? So how long should a workout be? Uh, there was a point in time, and, and you may or may not remember this, but there was like uh, some studies or, or some kind of research that came out and basically said like, you know, at the, I think it was like, and this like made me get super scared of training for too long. I'll never forget this. It was like at the 40 to 45 minute mark, your testosterone starts to decline during your training session or something, some kind of like radical claim like that. And it freaked me out and I'm like, no, my testosterone. Um, and I don't think that's really the case. I think that it honestly comes down to total work volume total caloric expenditure, total hours of sleep, stuff like that. Like we really have to consider overall fatigue more so than we need to consider um, the demands of one single session. And the reason I say that is because one single session isn't going to necessarily wear down your body so much that you begin to have all these hormonal repercussions. It's more of an accumulation of training, accumulation of cardio, accumulation of a caloric deficit or, or, or surplus, whatever way, caloric balance period, um, and an accumulation of poor sleep that's going to really affect and harm each thing. So how long should each session be? As long as you have to work out or as long as it takes to fit your volume in. Like really it comes down to volume, right? So if you only have an hour to train, then you, that's how long your session should be. If you only have 30 minutes, that's how long it should be. If you say I have unlimited amount of time, I would say, hey, like going over two hours is kind of ridiculous. You know what I mean? If, you, if you're doing a high volume training, if you're really focused on your physique and you're taking adequate rest periods to lift as much as possible every single set, you're taking your time, you're looking at your form, it, there's nothing wrong with having a two-hour session um, if you if it doesn't cause more stress. The reality is is having to be in the gym for two hours to most people causes more stress. But I have some clients and I know some people who have as much time as needed to train. And in their situation, two hours is not that big of a deal. It's not going to drain them. And it's what's needed in order to fit all the training and all the volume they need for their specific goal, which is usually an extreme goal or a very advanced individual striving for the most optimal results possible. So how long a session should be really should be, it's two answers. Number one, as long as it needs to be in order for you to fit your weekly volume. So 
if you're hitting the higher thresholds of volume per week and you're only doing four sessions a week, your sessions are probably going to be longer. So it might be more advantageous to do six sessions per week so that your sessions each time are shorter, but you're still hitting the amount of volume. So it's kind of up to you. And then the second answer of that is however long you need to train. Like you got to think of adherence. So as long as you can be in there. How long should a training program be? So this is like the duration of a full program. Um, there's a million answers for this, so it really depends. You know, like if we look at a macro cycle, well, you're, I mean your training program could be a year long if we're planning it that way. It could be three months. It could be six months. It could be one month. I think at the end of the day, a single program should usually be three to four weeks long. Um, as a coach, the program, quote unquote, for me is usually three months or four four months or five months or six months, um, I look at the long scale as long as I believe this client is going to be with me. Um, and some, for some people, I have a lot of clients that have been with me for eight to 12 months, sometimes even a, longer than a year. And for those people, their program is a year because what we're doing right now is what we're going to – like I have a guy that just started with me and uh, he a couple people actually, two guys that just started with me this month who are, they committed to a full year of training with me. For those individuals, what we're doing right now is in preparation for what we're going to be doing on month 12. Like I already have this in mind. Um, the thing with that is, and we have to remember this, right now I have a very, very specific and detailed program that they will be doing month one. Month 12 is far from detailed because I do not know where we are going to be at month six or month three. As they progress, as things adjust, as life changes, as the results progress, that's what dictates month 12. So I have an idea of where I want them to be at in month 12 and that's why I say the program is 12 months long is because we are periodizing, we are planning everything around that whole entire period we're going to be working together. But the program itself is four weeks. I usually think a four-week program is, is about right. You spend Week one, getting really used to the program, pushing yourself. Week two, you're trying to progress. Week three, you're trying to peak and build as much on top of what you started at. And then week four, you deload, taper down, and then week one of the next program starts. So you you have like accumulation of three weeks going up, and then you have one deload, and then you move on to the next thing. So usually I like a four-week program. If somebody gets bored very quickly, I will do three weeks. But anything less than three weeks, I do not believe is long enough to truly see progress. And as we know, we actually have to progress week to week in order to see a specific result. We can't just do things at random too consistently. Um, there has to be some rhyme or reason uh, for, for you to see progress, especially in the compound list. We have to have some regularity week to week. Last question. What's the best way to progressively overload? So this has changed over the years in my opinion, at least in my experience it has, um, of what I believe the best way to do it is. Um, first answer that most people come to is add weight to the bar. So if I can add 5 to 10 pounds to the bar every single week to the dumbbell to the whatever exercise I'm using – that's probably going to be the best way to progressively overload because my total volume, my total intensity, my total work done is increasing and it's very easy to see that it's a linear, just you're progressing. It's obvious. You're adding weight to the bar. I think that's great. Um, I personally believe if you can progressively overload your total volume via reps and sets, I think you are going to have better results from a hypertrophy and aesthetic result. Um, the reason for this is because we know volume is the key driver of hypertrophy. So if we can increase volume over time, I think that's great. You can only do that to a certain extent though and then you have to focus on building weight. I like my favorite progressive overload model is a very simple uh, – I believe it's called linear periodization with wave loading. So basically what this does is week one, we'll do four sets of eight. Week two, we're doing four sets of seven. 
Week three, we're doing four sets of six. And week four, we bring it back up to four sets of eight. So basically what I'm doing is every week, I'm actually dropping volume. So I'm actually lowering a rep, but I'm adding weight because since I'm doing less weight or reps, I can do more weight with that exercise. It's obvious. So I slowly add weight um, week one, week two, week three. And then week four, I actually come back to four times eight, four sets of eight. But at this point, I have accumulated more load, and so I can probably lift more weight for that four sets of eight. So what it might look like is four sets of eight with 200, four sets of seven for 205, and then four sets of six with 210, then four sets of eight with 205. So now I'm lifting for eight what I had lifted for seven. For some people who have a slower adaptation to strength, it might be better to spread this out even further, so going four by eight. Four by seven, four by six, four by five, and then finally four by eight. So you're doing a four-week progression instead of a three. That seems to be my favorite way. That's what functional muscle uses, um, but we do it in even, so it actually goes four by ten, four by eight, four by six, and then we switch to four by nine, and we go odds. So that has a nine-week progression model. But I really like doing it like that, wave loading, increasing load while decreasing reps. This allows you to lift more weight, get stronger without the injury risk of trying to push it for the same weight. Like especially as an advanced lifter, an advanced lifter trying to build muscle or change their body, I think this works the best because if you told me to add five pounds to the bar for my four sets of eight squat every week, it's going to be damn near impossible. In fact, it is going to be impossible, especially after a few weeks. But with this model, because I'm lowering reps, I can add weight and that's going to slowly build more strength um, over time. So I could follow this model for a long time. You could do this for 16 to 20 weeks and it would be very successful. So the best way to progressively overload is usually by adding volume via total weight weight lifted. Um, and I like doing this by, uh, linear wave loading week to week on a three or four week block model. But at the end of the day, there is no best way to period, uh, pro progressively overload to be completely transparent. I think that at the end of the day, progressive overload is progressive overload and there's a million different ways to do it. And at the end of the day, as long as you're increasing your overload by adding reps, adding sets, adding weight, you're progressively, progressively overloading, and that's really all that matters.